So Matthew chapter 28 is the resurrection chapter of that gospel. And in that gospel, there are two commands that are repeated. Fear not. First time it is said is by an angel to the women who come to the empty tomb in verse 5. The second time we hear fear not is from Jesus to those same women, the resurrected Jesus. Fear not, he said. Or in some of the modern translations, do not be afraid. So in this final sermon, in this sermon series, Obey Everything, we are looking at the command of Jesus to fear not, be not afraid. A Christian's life is not to be characterized by fear in general and fear of the grave or fear of death in particular. Now, of course, fear of the death is a universal fear. It always has been. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 2.15, he speaks of those who have lived all their lives as slaves to the fear of dying. <clears throat> we all know that we're going to die, but we kind of know that theoretically or hypothetically. Uh, I want to make that a little more concrete this morning. I am going to die. You are going to die. In fact, let's say I'm going to die altogether on number three. One, two, three. I am going to die. See, aren't you glad you came to church today? <laughs> uh, I've had a number of people who tell me when they've had a prognosis from the doctor, a doctor, for instance, says, now you, you now have a window of time in which to live a life expectancy. And when they get that kind of expiration date on their life, it becomes very real and changes their perspective. Well, we want to make sure that we are prepared to face our death with courage and not be afraid. And how does the resurrection of Jesus apply in that respect? It's great, of great significance. So I want to look at three ways in which we fear not death this morning. First of all, fear not the specter of judgment. Fear not the specter of judgment. Matthew 28, 10, Jesus said, Do not be afraid. Go tell my brothers to leave for Galilee. And no matter how um, many quote-unquote scientific books a person might read to try to convince themselves that we are nothing more than hairless apes and that after we die, we simply cease to exist. Deep down inside, just about every person senses that that's not the case. There is something about us that goes on after death. Solomon said that God has put eternity into each person's heart. So we know that intuitively. And we also intuitively sense that there is a moral judge of the universe to which every person must give an account. The Hebrew writer says in Hebrews 9.27, each person is destined to die once, and after that comes judgment. And continuing in the context of judgment, the Hebrew writer writes in 10.31, it is a terrible thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Even as Christians, when we reflect on our lives, we have to admit that we have not lived consistently Christian lives all of the time. There has been sin. And in that moment, those moments when we're, if we're brutally honest with each other, in our self-assessment, we might agree with the Apostle Paul. 1 Timothy 1.15, Paul said, I am the worst of them all. I'm the worst sinner of them all. And sometimes we feel like that. And yet, so we want to be reminded right here in this resurrection chapter that we need not fear judgment. When Jesus arose and he gave a message to the women, he said, go tell my brothers that I will meet them in Galilee. Now, who were the brothers he was referring to there? It was the remaining 11 disciples. Now, the last time we read about the 11 disciples in Matthew's account, it was this, Matthew 26, 56. 
In the context of the Garden of Gethsemane, at that point, all the disciples deserted Jesus and fled. That's the last thing we read of the disciples. Even though to a man they had promised, I won't desert you, I won't deny you, I won't run away. Peter said you know, three times, everybody else runs away, I'm not going to run away. When push came to shove, they all did. They broke their word. They were dishonest. This was a cowardly action. And yet when Jesus rose from the grave, he said, go tell my brothers. Go tell my brothers. He was not speaking in judgment terms concerning these disciples. Why is that? Because he had just died for their sins. In describing his death, he said in Matthew 26, 28, this is my blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sin. As we just sang in that powerful song, God is for you, God is for you, God is for you, God is for you. When we believed, repented of our sin, confessed Jesus as Lord, and were baptized into Christ, we connected, God connected us to his death and his resurrection. So a Christian does not stand in judgment as far as his eternal destiny is concerned. Now, everybody stands before God in judgment as far as the words that we have spoken and the actions that we have taken, even Christians. But for Christians, it's not to determine their eternal destiny, it's to determine their rewards. It's to determine their rewards. We have eternal life right now, right here, right now, and it will continue after death. But our rewards are based upon our actions. That's what the Bible teaches and the words that we have spoken. Kind of like my grandson, he's 10 years old, just finished a basketball season in the league there, a little basketball league that they had. Their team won, they were the champions. But after their final game, the coach got the team all together to hand out the little awards and the superlatives. And he just didn't give everybody a participation trophy. He individualized every medal that each one got. So one person got a little medal for the most effort. And someone else got a medal for highest score. And someone else got a medal most improved. And that's kind of the way I envision this. When Christians stand before God and our lives are reviewed, God is going to be giving accommodations and rewards. So you might get a reward for most sacrificial or for being generous or something that you did. Least the person that was least likely expected to wind up in heaven. I don't know. <laughs> but praise God, a Christian, a Christian need not fear judgment. Secondly, as we're talking about thinking about death, and we don't need to fear death. Fear not the FOMO. Fear not the FOMO. F-O-M-O. Matthew 28, 9. And as they went, Jesus met them and he greeted them. Now, FOMO is an acronym that I just learned this past week. I was asking different people, doing unscientific research, what is it about death that people really fear? And this was a very common response, uh, the, the FOMO. So anybody know what FOMO stands for? Apparently, about half the people I talked to did. I didn't. F-O-M-O. Anybody know what that stands for? Just call out. That's it. Y'all know. Fear of missing out. When a person dies, they sort of leave life in the middle of the story. And if you were to ask someone, what do you, what do you not like about death? That's a big part of it. Well, you know, I kind of want to be there. I want to see the babies that are born or the grandchildren. I want to be there for the graduation. I want to be there 
for the weddings that are to take place. I want to be there for their accomplishments and even for the heartbreaks and the heartaches. It's the fear of missing out. And I want us to notice something this morning as we reflect on that. When Jesus rose from the grave, and first of all, Jesus' resurrection is the prototype for our resurrection. When we rise in the resurrection, we will be like Jesus in his resurrection. Now, not in all ways, but we'll be more like him than we'll be dislike him. So we'll have a resurrected body like his. This will be a resurrected earth like his. Our relationships will be like his. Notice that when Jesus rose from the grave, he picked up where he left off. He still had a memory of what he'd done before, and he knew the disciples. And they knew him, and they recognized him. They continued talking. In fact, in the Gospel of John, Jesus met up with them, and he, they were fishing, and they ate together, and he continued teaching them before he ascended into heaven. Simply picked up where he left off. He was still engaged in the story that was going on here and earth. And I think that foreshadows the fact we are engaged. We will stay engaged in certain ways. Randy Alcorn in his big book on heaven infers the following characteristics of Christians. He infers these from those who have died from John's description of the martyrs in Revelation chapter 6 verses 9 and 11. Here are 10 things. Number one, there is direct continuity between our identity on earth and our identity in paradise. Number two, people in paradise will be remembered for their lives on earth. Three, in paradise we are fully conscious and aware of each other, aware of God, and aware of the situation on earth. Four, while in paradise we're free to ask God questions, which means we have an audience with God. Five, we remember our lives on earth, including how we died. Six, those in paradise see God's attributes in a way that make his judgment of sin more understandable and palatable. Seven, those in paradise are distinct individuals. There is not one merged identity that obliterates uniqueness. Eight, we continue to learn in paradise. Nine, the people of God in paradise have a strong family connection with those on earth who are called their fellow servants and their brothers. And finally, 10, there is a vital connection between the events and the people in paradise and the events and the people on earth. There is what theologians call redemptive continuity. And that is true of all the resurrections we see, including the people that Jesus resurrected before he died and was resurrected from the grave. I like to think of it like a relay race. Imagine that you are an Olympic caliber runner. That may be a stretch for some, but you're an Olympic runner, and your event is the 400-meter relay. You're going to run one of those legs in that relay race. So how far are you going to run? No, you're going to run 400 meters. In the 400-meter relay race, every runner runs 400 meters. There's 1,600 meters total. So you're going to run, let's say you're going to run the first leg of the 400-meter relay race. You run that. You successfully hand off the baton to your teammate. Then what are you going to do? Are you going to turn around, trot off the field to the locker room, get a shower, and take a nap? No, absolutely not. 
This is for the gold. You're going to step aside and you're going to watch your teammate run the next leg of that race and the one after that and the one after that. You are totally invested and engaged in what's going on through the rest of that race. Doesn't that sound a lot like the picture that the Hebrew writer describes when in Hebrews chapter 11, he talks about all of these Old Testament saints who are dead. They have passed away. They've run their leg of the race. And then in the very next chapter, he describes them as witnesses to what is going on on earth in our leg of the race. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Therefore, since we are surrounded by this huge crowd of witnesses to the life of faith, let us strip off every weight that slows us down, especially the sin that so easily trips us up, and let us run with endurance the race that God has set before us. I think it's fair to infer that we, when we're in heaven, having died, we are watching, we are engaged in the story that continues on here. When this story on earth comes to an end, and there is the general resurrection, and we are all on the new earth in our new bodies, I also believe. There's another race to run at that time. Fear not the FOMO. And then thirdly and finally, fear not the ignominy of death. Fear not the ignominy of death. Verse 1 and verses 5 through 6. Early on Sunday morning, as the new day was dawning, Mary Magdalene and the other Mary went out to visit the tomb. And then the angel spoke to the women, don't be afraid, he said. I know you are looking for Jesus who was crucified. He isn't here. He is risen from the dead. The word ignominy means public shame and disgrace. Some of these synonyms for ignominy are degradation, abasement, indignity, humiliation, and embarrassment. When I talk to people about, I've asked them, what, what, is, what is it about death that you fear or that you think people fear? Uh, it's not judgment necessarily. It's not always FOMO. It's this. It is the very process of dying. The old saying is, everybody wants to go to heaven. Nobody wants to die to get there. We've all known or, or have, have loved ones who experienced a long illness that led to their death. And it may have lasted for weeks or months or even for years. And their death was indeed ignominious. It was painful, there was suffering, and humiliation as they lose control of their body and other people have to take over for them. And many of us have thought to ourselves and some have said alive, uh, aloud, rather, I don't want to die like that. I don't want to go through that. That's what I mean by the ignominy of death. What is there about Jesus' resurrection that might encourage us and embolden us to face that aspect of death. I think there's a couple of things. Number one, Jesus' resurrection shows us that the duration of the death process is limited. It's limited in duration. And secondly, because of the resurrection and, and the glory of the resurrection, it mitigates that ignominy. It gives us something so grand to look forward to that it will make that duration seem even shorter, relatively speaking. Now, let me say this about Jesus' death, which was absolutely 
an ignominious death. Jesus' trial before the Sanhedrin might have begun as early as 1 or 2 a.m. on Friday morning. Then he went before Pilate, then Herod, then Pilate again, where he was sentenced to scourging and crucifixion. Jesus was on the cross from 9 a.m. Friday morning until he died at 3 p.m. on Friday afternoon. So that's six hours actually on the cross. So the total time duration of Jesus' suffering or passion as it is called, lasted for as long as 14 hours. And then three days later, on Sunday morning, he arose from the dead. Now, Jesus knew that he was going to die. He knew what kind of death it was going to be. He describes it in Matthew chapter 26 to the disciples. He said, the Son of Man is going to go to Jerusalem. He's going to be tried, convicted, scourged, crucified, But here's how he ended that description. Matthew chapter 20, verse 19, he said, But on the third day, he'll be raised from the dead. That's how he ended it. Jesus knew all about the details of his death, but he also knew of the resurrection. And what I suggest is that his knowledge of the resurrection emboldened him and empowered him to face that death with courage. The Bible teaches this. Hebrews chapter 12, verse 1. Because Jesus never lost sight of where he was headed, that exhilarating finish in and with God, he could put up with anything along the way. Cross, shame, whatever. And now he's there in the place of honor right alongside of God. The same encouragement is given to us as Christians, that because we look forward to a resurrection like his, we can face the pain and the ignominy of death, and relatively speaking, it is limited in its duration. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 16, here's what Paul writes about death. Though our bodies are dying, our inner strength in the Lord is growing every day. These troubles and sufferings of ours are, after all, quite small and won't last very long. Yet this short time of distress will result in God's richest blessing upon us forever and ever. So we don't look at what we can see right now, the troubles all around us, but we look forward to the joys in heaven, which we have not yet seen. The troubles will soon be over, but the joys to come will last forever. When I turned 30, I had one of those big birthday parties. Tammy threw me, invited all of our friends. A bunch of relatives came in. It was all videotaped back then. You had these big video recorders that sat on your shoulder, you know, and it's videotaped. And one of my friends, he said, Steve, well, let me show you. You got the video recorder. Let me show you what your life's going to be like now that you've turned 30. He said, we've fallen down a hall. We went into the bathroom. He focused that camera on the toilet. He flushed it. (laughs) This is your life after 30, he said. Well, I don't know if it's that extreme. But we're all in the process of dying. And in that final process, it can be very difficult and challenging and ignominious. But the fact of the knowledge of resurrection to come shortens that duration and even makes it worth it. I want to uh, tell you about Tina Banwart. Tina Banwart died in 2017 at the age of 31. She lived in Illinois. Now, our connection or my connection to her is that her aunt, Deanna Harrell, attends our church. As for several years, 
She's a winter resident, uh, Deanna and Chris. And so Deanna had her on our prayer list throughout the, the, her process of dying. And I was praying and interacting with uh, her folks and family and whatnot. And so after Tina passed, uh, Deanna gave me this book that her mom wrote about that experience. It's called Her Healing and His Glory. And I want to close this morning by reading you an excerpt from the final chapter of that book. And it's a little bit of a long reading, so bear with me here. But Tina's mom writes, Oh, the miracle of a baby's birth. Nine months of preparation, nine months of waiting, discomfort, physical and emotional changes, changes, nine months of wondering just how different life will be. Gestation of a little human baby allows for God to properly, if only partly, prepare the mom and dad to transition from a season of pregnancy into a new season of parenting. Tina was diagnosed with stage four colorectal cancer in February of 2017. Exactly nine months later, she drew her last breath here on earth. In those months, God was properly, if only partly, preparing her for her delivery. When a woman first discovers she is pregnant, a myriad of emotions emerges. Depending on her situation, she may experience gratitude, joy, excitement, confusion, anxiety, or fear. The analogy of Tina's preparation for death is striking. As the cancer spread and those often excruciating months progressed, Tina's body was physically preparing for a final fit into that beautiful portal of paradise. On the morning of November 7th, the doctor gravely but emphatically pronounced, she is actively dying. On the initial hearing, I shook my head in bewilderment, thinking the description an oxymoron. Isn't dying a term of relinquishing or giving up? The doctor was suggesting that activity was necessary and occurring to allow our daughter to pass from this life to another. But as the hours of that terminal day wore on, the phrase became incredibly accurate. Tina was actively laboring to die. Shortly after noon, a loving group gathered around her bed and sweetly sang some treasured hymns. Upon finishing one of her favorites, Tina produced a weak yet grateful smile. And that would be her last. But Tina had to make that final push into the new world. Nine months of preparation, emotionally, spiritually, and physically, now gave victory for her entrance into that new world, heaven. Shortly before her final breath, all those remaining in Tina's room were praying for a peaceful transition. The end and the beginning was near. As her husband Tyler and I leaned into her sweet face, I whispered, well done, good and faithful servant. And he finished entering into the joys of the Lord. And just as there are often countless family and friends awaiting the arrival of a new baby, so we can confidently assert there was a host of angels and loved ones already passed through heaven's gates, straining to watch and earnestly cheering our Tina on to make that final push, to breathe that final earthly breath. And then they cheerfully cried, she's arrived. It's a girl, Tina. She looks like her father. It was a perfect delivery. Praise God, her healing, his glory. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, it's Easter Sunday, Resurrection Sunday. As we reflect on death and we reflect on fear, we thank you, Lord, that the truth of the resurrection equips us to approach the inevitability of our death 
with courage. We know there's a glorious end to look forward to at the end of this process. And we thank you for that hope. In Jesus' name, amen.